This is taxpayers' money. Why is it suddenly private if it's an advisor and not an ABC journal federally? I don't understand it. We love catching up together later on to reflect on the knowledge and humour that you weave into each instalment. Carol, we're good for marriages and relationships. We have a new role in life. There are so many reasons why this is a bad idea, but to plant the seed, the idea of a seed in the minds of fans that these games don't really matter. Black Mark Gillen, bad call. I love that caring and sharing stuff. That's a good way to use Australia Post. Not buying books from Amazon that arrive seven weeks late that charge you $50 in freight and everybody thinks they've got a freaking bargain. Take that, Amazon. Take that. Bit of vested interest going on there. <laughs> I have never seen anybody over the age of 35 or 40 using two fingers. And if you're out there, please send me a video of you doing it. It is one of the more extraordinary films I have ever seen. The term jump the shark does come to mind. Don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello everyone and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 47. I'm Corey Perkin and with me once again is award-winning journalist and as we approach the business end of the footy season, a rather tense Tiger fan, Caroline Wilson. Hi, Caro. Big game on Saturday coming up. There certainly is, Corrie. They're predicting a sellout between the Tigers and the Pies. And if the MCG hadn't done that deal with Collingwood, where they get all these extra seats in the Ponsford stand, they could have got over 90,000. But it's going to be a big day, and nonetheless. Are you, are you going? Corrie. Oh, please. With, with Anna from the op shop, your <laughs> mum, Julia. It's like the, Anna's mum, Sarah. The night Nick McKenzie, Tupperware. the day after. Nick McKenzie, the age investigative reporter. At this Big Age Live event in November, December last year, it was the day after the Walkleys where he'd yet again scooped the ball, said, so did you go to the grand final? I just looked at him. <laughs> well, I was the age chief football writer and I'm a Richmond supporter and I haven't missed a grand final. for Anyway, it was just quite funny. Yes, I'm not, looking not forward to it. Not such an astute investigative reporter, I would suggest. Carol, was we, a bit dishevelled that day. We have a huge, um, again, a lovely huge show today. This weekend, of course, the federal government's Super Saturday by-elections are on. There are five of them, so we're going to have a quick peek at that. Plus, we're going to look at what makes a good political advisor and are they really worth the money they are paid? Um, You've got a novel to discuss. You have done a crash course in Swedish because you had to go off and see a Scandi film and you have a recipe. So I might just kick back in my deck chair. But I do have a quick update for Potties on the 2018 Man Booker Literary Awards. The long list was announced this week. So that's thrown the book world into a mighty tiz. I do have a few apologies. <laughs> you might be surprised to hear too. I actually have one too. Uh, you except, go first. Well, Gabrielle Coyne, our friend, is very happy with your comments about nicknames in footy. You know, a bit of a boys' club thing. Oh, Richo, Brownie, I'd, Hutchie. Oh, you know, that, Damo. It, it's not such a big deal for me, but uh, yeah, I, I get. I certainly get it. I guess I'm so used to it. So, what does Gabrielle say? Well, she agrees with you, and she thinks that um, it's. There's no place for it in a professional environment. Old boys and business, AFL and media, same thing, and it all crosses over. But I do have to apologise to Kate B because I apparently I have a tendency when I'm reviewing shows to um, actually say what happens. Well, I'm I'm sorry. Oh, like you did last night at Cards with me. Well, you gave something away about Polduck and I just did. There's a character and said, in... Don't talk anymore. There is and a you car- see, you kept telling me. No, don't do it again. All I'm... Corey, I'm telling you, there is a character in Poldark who is a love interest of one of the characters. But you told me what happened with the love interest. Demelza's sister. I haven't told you one third. Demelza's brother. 
Demelza's brother. I've got the gist. Here's the image. The image of your daughter, Coco. She's so gorgeous anyway. But I'm sorry, um, Kate B, that I talked about the Jack Irish spoiler alert item that I won't say any more about. And I'm sorry um, I've given away anything out of the Mary Stewart novel um, regarding the car chase through the mountains. (laughs) But otherwise, she thinks we're pretty perfect. So... Look, I, I next, I, what I'll do is I'll say spoiler alert and Miss Jane, the hardworking Miss Jane, who has brought in the most beautiful blossom today. What's it called, Miss Jane? Japonica. It is so pretty. And we've also got flowers from Julia as well. So we're, we're surrounded. We're fully, we're fully bloomed up. We're floral. Caro, I have a bit of an apology or, well, not, so, not an apology, an acknowledgement to all the Wednesday golfers out there. My husband, Pete, listened to the episode where you talked about WAGs, get rid of this term WAGs, meaning wives and girlfriends of AFL players. It also applies to soccer as well. And he said, don't you girls know that the blokes who play golf on Wednesday afternoons, the Wednesday afternoon golfers are known as WAGs. Well, I think women actually do play golf on Wednesdays too, Peter. But anyway, anybody who plays golf on a Wednesday is known as a WAG. So he just said that he thought that we'd done a bit of a disservice to all of those people out there by you saying, I can't stand the term WAG. Does Pete want to become our grumpy contributor? He was grumpy with me for mentioning that Gillan McLaughlin was in Italy. He said you didn't need to say where he was. Um, I'm like, why not? Potties, thanks for your bouquets regarding um, our tip a couple of weeks ago on the film Back to Burgundy, that beautiful French film. Um, Some of our gang went to see it and they have raved and thanked us for the good tip. It's still on if anybody wants to go and see it. And Vic Peters on Instagram asked whether you and I have more hours in a day than everyone else. <laughs> yeah, people do say that. How do you get to read all this stuff? I don't – I mean, we, we are people who never really stop, although I did stop on Sunday and sit down and watch this great new Netflix show, uh, BBC First show, Into the Dark. I watched three episodes in a row. I don't reckon I've sat down on the sofa. I was but, trying to get to see a movie on Sunday and I thought, I mm, wonder whether you're around, but I actually almost did the same thing. I could have, uh, busy I could in the have morning. been tempted. Now, Kevin from Geelong's not happy with me and it's nothing Kevin, to do with... Kevin, he's back. It's not Welcome nothing to, back. It's nothing to do with the Kev, podcast. where have you been? Oh, no, he's been around. He, he gives us some very good ideas. Well, you haven't but, been passing any of his comments well, on to me. Well, on Monday night on Footy Classified, Hello, um, we interviewed Nathan Buckley and Nathan Buckley revealed after some quite good questioning from Craig Hutchison that... Um, he had, in fact, met Tom Lynch, the Gold Coast Suns captain. Kevin thinks I was very critical of Geelong riding into town a few years ago to interview the Port Adelaide young champ, Travis Boak, and I felt it was disrespectful. I hated the way it was a powerful club honing in on it at that time very, very un, non-powerful club, which was Port Adelaide on their knees. They were filmed, you know, there was Jimmy Bartell, there was Joel Selwood, there was Neil Baum, then footy manager and the coach, Chris Scott. And I wrote a piece with all these clubs criticising Geelong. So Kevin has let me know in no uncertain terms that I should have called Collingwood on it, even though it was far more subtle and that I am a complete hypocrite. Oh, Kevin, Sorry, I think Kevin. this take, take this offline. This is don't this is don't shoot the messenger. That's just a well. It sort of is. Footy stuff. It is don't. <laughs> it is don't shoot the messenger. I just want to give him a mention because he has been a great friend of the okay, podcast. Okay, have you apologised enough? Because your cheeks are glowing with blush. I, now I know that Pauline Hanson's done a runner, but can you take me through the five seats in four states <laughs> that are facing by elections? It's very weekend? confusing. So. What's happened, everyone, is this uh, Super Saturday, which is happening this Saturday weekend as we go to air with our podcast. Richmond Collingwood. But, oh, okay. Go on. (laughs) 
Go on. It'll be a lot more interesting than that, I can tell you. Although I do love a good election night. Anthony Green on the ABC, Annabelle Crabb livening things up. But this was all sparked by the failure of Labor MPs to renounce their dual citizenship before the last election. Um, we talked about this quite a fair bit last year, Caro. And, yes. of course, these uh, the fallout of this and what happens on Saturday is pretty crucial, um, not so much to the Libs, but um, certainly to Bill Shorten and the Labor Party and Bill Shorten's leadership, dare I say. So there are five seats up for grabs this weekend, Caro. Longman in Queensland, Mayo in South Australia, Braddon in Tasmania, and two in WA, Fremantle and Perth. The WA seats are pretty safe Labor seats. Interestingly, Mayo is held by an independent, Rebecca Sharkey, and she's facing a challenge from the very determined Georgina Downer, who's a Liberal and, as we know, comes from good Downer stock. Her father, Alexander, for many years was um, an eminent and highly respected um, foreign minister. Got into trouble in a bar in London recently, yes. didn't need speaking out of turn about <laughs> Oh, the, no, he met the Russians. He was told there was – he met Boris and he – no, not George. George, the the Greek chap who told him that the Russians had been uh, – had infiltrated the American election system. Um, and also Alexander Downer once was caught in high heels doing a little pantomime thing. But um, apart from that, we do uh, have a great deal of respect for him. Longman has Susan Lamb, who's ALP, and she won at the last federal election by just 0.8%. So she's hanging on by a um, – by the hair on her head. So so to, to cut to the chase, if the government doesn't win in Braddon or Longman, it's not a major deal. But no, and it, it, and it won't win Fremantle or Perth. But if Labor loses in either Perth... L- Labor could lose three or four seats. They could lose in Tasmania as Correct, well. Correct, Demondo. And, and Queensland. So, so what does that mean for Bill? Well, everybody is saying... So, so, of course, as we know, caucus have this new rule where you can't just um, create instability and knife your knifey leader. You know, once you sign on, you sign on them with them for, you know, for a period of time. But there is a suggestion that Anthony Albanese and his supporters are watching with bated breath what happens on Saturday. Uh, Of course, they have said, and I believe them, nobody wants a loss, you know, for the sake of Anthony Albanese taking the leadership. But there is a feeling that this could be Bill Hayden and Bob Hawke all over again. Do you remember that 1983 yep. election? That po- just as the drought was breaking in Australia and there was that whole – Malcolm Fraser thought that he was going to – The drove election. dog election. Yeah. And he thought he was going to face Bill Hayden. And what do you know? As he was driving to Government House, Labor Party caucus, off you pop Bill, in comes Bob and they – they trounced it in at the election a few weeks later. So this is all a very interesting weekend. Um, I would suggest potties, is, you know, watch the replay of the Richmond-Collingwood game on the telly rather than the ABC four hours. Of, but but they're do, the ABC is doing a complete coverage of it, are they? Yes, and it's also available, I think, on Sky News, something like that. But anyway, um, we will be watching with beta breath. But it was interesting the other night, Carol, I was listening to Late Night Live and Laura Tingle, who's their weekly political correspondent, who is just my big journalist crush now that she's morphed into a terrific television star and she's going out with Sam Neill, the actor. Um, she was asked... Is she? Oh, how did, how did I that? miss that? <laughs> well, That's buried, not... buried the oh lead there. God, I know something that you don't about who's sleeping with who. They met on um, they met on Twitter. She tweeted that she thought he was rather cute and friend, and then he tweeted back and then friends suggested they should go on a date. Anyway... Apparently, it's a lovely relationship in the blossom. That's extraordinary. But, um, 
Laura was asked what's the mood of the electorate because she has spent for chat for ABC she's spent a week in Braddon and Longman just getting the mood and she said it is quite striking I have never seen anything like it the ambivalence and disinterest in the electorates is just, it's really hard to get people to talk about this electorate election or this by election and I just think, Kara, people are not only they're fed up and disheartened by federal politicians, you know, there's the citizenship drama is just being ridiculous. Barnaby Joyce, you know, mental, a disruptive and divided Senate for the last couple of years. But also people are doing it tough. I notice in our bookshop suburb, you know, we don't have as many people buying as many books as they used to. It is tough out there. People are working hard and they're pretty focused. So for these for these poor people to have yet another election, they're just like, I don't care. So I think um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see the outcome. But uh, anyway, oh, on, big day. on Sunday morning, I, I was um, um, unable to do the offsiders this week. But I'm now thinking, had I said yes, Laura Tingle would have been in there doing the insiders and I could have asked her Please about Please tell that. me you wouldn't have done anything as embarrassing as how's Sam going and would you like to come over I for would dinner? Have. No, oh, just, no, that, no, I'm so it, embarrassed. Is it true, is it no, true you met on Twitter? Well, because, you know, their team moves out as we move in and they're sort of, you know, the political team. And as we're if the you're going to say as you're swapping chairs with Laura, how's Sam? <laughs> While they're doing talking pictures, I could just go over and we could you do Sam in your final observation? Loved him and in the dish, Laura. Loved him speaking in the dish. of, that's a, this is a good segue into the ABC and also political salaries, and in fact, all salaries linked to public service because, of course, the federal government, the federal Liberal Party, is threatening to reveal. You know how they've got this thing about what ABC journos earn and what ABC commentators earn, and if you. They, they, they want to change the act. So yes. anyone who earns over $200,000 is so... Driven, driven by Pauline Hanson, who's on a cruise around Ireland oh, at the moment with a by-election, a couple of by-elections affecting her stuff. She's completely waved the white feather. But anyway, um, they're saying that they want to na- name and shame, so-called name and shame, anyone earning over $200,000. This is the Fed rule libs. So in Victoria, where there was also... A, well, there's a state election coming up in November... Um, Brendan, my husband, Brendan Donahue, broke a story the other day about the fact that Dennis Napthine's key political advisor, was a, he was originally a media advisor, came back on board during the election campaign four or so years ago, was earning $380,000, which was, which was a serious amount of money. More, serious? More than the leader, more than the leader in the state. So he did this story that... People have just gone nuts. So how did Brendan find out what he earned? Well, did he have to do a um, well, Freedom of Information request? Well, this is the thing. I don't actually know exactly how he found out. And don't, we don't you discuss ask... it? No, we don't talk about how people how we get stories. No. You oh, come off it. You want to talk to Laura Tingle about her love life with Sam Neill, well, but you won't ask your husband. Does bring... He brings you a cup of tea in the morning. Oh, Dal, last night you had that great story, so how did you get it? No, well, I need, he wouldn't tell me. I mean, if, there were, if it was a Freedom of Information request, he would tell me. But I think what the Liberals have done in the Victorian Parliament have gone nuts and said, this is a disgrace and these are private. This is the advisor. This is taxpayers' money. Why is it suddenly private if it's an advisor and not an ABC journo federally? I don't understand it. So they've said this is a disgrace that this was allowed on FOI. The government have said there wasn't an FOI request. That was about another matter that... Somehow, I think the information has come to light. Anyway, everyone's absolutely furious about it in the Liberal Party, and I cannot understand it. I think everyone's got every right to know. And I also think the advisor, whose name is Steve Murphy, 
back then, who was actually a former senior um, media advisor to Jeff Kennett when he was Premier, why on earth is that suddenly private and sacrosanct? Crazy. Well, anyway. it is taxpayer money, but Carol, I wonder what political advisors do. What do they do? Well, Corrie, they advise the government of the day or the they opposition of the day. They don't always do a very day. good job, Dennis How Napthine lost his... Well, Dennis Napthine's office was, uh, as I recall, it was in a bit of disarray at the time and Steve came in, Steve Murphy came in, but it does seem like a hell of a lot of money to um, me. And you know what they do because you've worked as an advisor, not to politician. Well, well when you're $380,000 a year. When you were working at the National Gallery. Yes, it was one of my jobs to advise. The minister, the yeah. arts minister. Well, yeah, you advise well you advised their you would actually you advised their advisors who then took your information dressed it up as their own and took it to the minister or the premier. Oh, it sounds a bit a bit of Bit of bitterness there, Corrie. So, what was Mary Dalhunter the arts ideas. minister yeah, then? She was, well, yeah, she was. Yeah, for the entire term that I was there. So, were there many? Did things ever go horribly wrong? Yes, lots of things went horribly wrong while I was there. We had a big development at St Kilda Road and a big one at Federation Square, but uh, you know, not lots of things that you would know about Caro. But it was all about having open and frank discussion. And my thing was always, you know, tell the truth if we're dealing with stakeholders or media. And that didn't always go down so well with the minister's advisers. Yeah, I, they're not I, always big fans of telling the truth, Cara. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it, look, it's all about spin, particularly in election campaign and how things are going to be sold. And there's still a huge amount of bitterness, certainly towards the uh, the ALP or sorry to the scare campaign about Medicare in the last federal election That's campaign right. and how there was this massive scare campaign that Medicare was going to be dismantled. And it was clever. It was subtle. And they were lies. And it did the trick. It does. But, is, you know, does it make it okay? Carol, you just mentioned the ABC and I just wanted to give you a little update. Do you remember our friend, uh, Ranul McDonald, who is one of the friends of the ABC organisers, wrote to the editor of The Age, yep. Alex Lavelle, to say you didn't cover our rally of 3,000 people. Who was actually overseas at the time, by the way, Alex. Okay. Well, when- Ranald, as of yesterday, um, when I asked, had not received, had still not received any correspondence from the age, even from an executive assistant or a deputy editor or someone like that to say Alex is away. He has not received any comment about that. So, but doesn't didn't doesn't you didn't you say that he opened his correspondence saying no need to reply to this? Well, <laughs> well, yes, but it's still quite nice when someone says that you still reply, don't you? You should. Well, it depends, I suppose. I think you should, especially when it's a former managing director of the company. Don't uh, you? Look, I'm still copying it for not ringing Stephen Silvani back the day he called me back in um, November last year, so I can't talk. Um, good opportunity to segue to the AFL and a masterful piece of spin doctoring that, well, not spin doctoring, of story planting that I think went horribly wrong for the AFL this week. Now, the AFL have decided. I, I, feel, I feel like we. I feel like this happens. Every week during football season, <laughs> they plant a story and it goes horribly well, wrong. Well, no, they didn't plant a story. So Jared Waitley, probably the preeminent AFL broadcaster at the moment because of his new program that's... Friend you know, of the pod. Friend of the podcast, new program on SEN, wonderful commentator, great footy caller, et cetera, et cetera. So this week at the height of the rule change controversy where we've got this new head of football who's coming to the AFL from Geelong, Steve Hocking, who is shaking things up. Former, in no- former Geelong champion. Yeah. 
champion. Mm. Very good player. Oh, Caro. I think I think you'd say his brother was a champion. I know Steve Hawking, great player, great football boss at Geelong. He's now running the AFL and he has come in and he is creating a revolution. He's threatening to get rid of runners. We're, we're even hearing now the golf square could be made bigger. The fixture's going to change. He's um, decided to create a charter for the AFL women's game. But most importantly, he wants to get rid of congestion. He made a comment a few, uh, well, I don't know if it was a few months or a few weeks ago, he might have said it more than once, that football is less now a game between two groups of players than two systems. Two, coach, two coaches and their coaching teams and their systems. So he has grave fears for the game. Everyone's saying that the game is too congested, congested and he's created a competition committee and they're looking at all manner of things, all manner of things from, you know, even to the point, as I said before, getting rid of runners. He's um, stopped the warm-up on the ground before the game. He's, he's changed so many things. There is... There was a meeting on Thursday in Melbourne between some of the biggest names in the game from all manner of football clubs, from you know presidents like Peggy O'Neill and Eddie Maguire to football bosses to um, players like Patrick Dangerfield and, of course, AFL people. So Gillan McLaughlin goes on Jared Waitley's show on Wednesday and suggests... So before the meeting. Yes, and suggests that they are going to trial some of these rule changes and the really contentious one is starting formations. So players will start in certain positions of the ground, which is never, which is not like an offside rule, but it does mean that, you know, you have to be in a certain spot. Yeah, so, when the no ball flooding, is so no flooding, that excitement no, as everybody it, comes into the ball. It's a 6 formation, it's known as. So Gillan McLaughlin suggests from a very, a question that was, I reckon, a bit of a Dorothy Dixer from Jared, who would have been well briefed on all of this because oh, he does his I can work. Feel an apology next Are week thinking, coming on here. Oh no, it's not. A, oh, to Jared. No, yes. I mean Jared, Jared and Claire. Take note. Jared obviously knew they were thinking of this. Are you thinking of trialing? Would you trial this in season this year? So, Gillan McLaughlin has admitted, has said, yes, we would, and he's got three games on the fixture, games that he says have no bearing on the finals or the final result of the uh, top eight this season, that they will use these clubs, and some of the clubs involved are Fremantle, Gold Coast, Brisbane, and I think Carlton. Yeah, Carlton was Um, They will be used in these experimental games. They will be used as guinea pigs for these rule changes. Now, the AFL community has gone nuts, and I... I'm with oh, and, them. And, so, and, and all of the, those it's football sh- clubs involved, what a shocking idea. It was, a, it was a great way to plant a very controversial idea, the way, the way Jared asked the question and didn't diss it. Jared obviously thought there was merit in it and I think even said that it's something they probably need to do. I couldn't disagree more. And, you know, people from Lee Matthews to but Matthew did, Lloyd, Oh, wait on. Did Jared say, did Jared editorialise and say that he thought it was a good idea or did he just put it out there? Because it's a good get. It's a, oh, good, I would plant the question too. Great scoop for everybody him. Everybody would keep but replaying then, the conversation. My recollection is he then made the comment, yes, I think this, this is something you need to do. He certainly didn't disagree with it and I reckon he didn't mind the idea. Now, to me, to use lower-ranked teams as guinea pigs when the season is still going, when there are other things at stake such as, you know, membership, supporters' loyalty, uh, draft picks because if you finish in a certain position on the ladder, we know Carlton's going to finish bottom and get the first pick in the national draft but we don't know who's going to finish second bottom, third bottom, etc. and all these games are going to have a bearing on the result. Now, I think... There are so many reasons why this is a bad idea, but to plant the seed, the idea of a seed in the minds of fans that these games don't really matter 
is just admitting. It's shocking. And the players as well. But also. Gillen, Black Mark Gillen, bad call, don't do it. And so by Wednesday night, everyone's being asked about it after the competition committee has met. And they and Steve Hawking has not backed away from it, but he hasn't confirmed it. So watch this space. Well, apart from the fracas amongst the playing community, Caro, I'm curious about the governance or the orderliness of this or the appropriateness. So if Gillen was having a meeting on the Thursday, which I imagine was going to be some sort of confidential conversation with all of his key stakeholders and people of, you know, of note in each club and each organisation. And he's gone on radio the day before to... Or the just, same day. Or you said Wednesday and then the meeting was oh, Thursday. Oh, no, sorry. The meeting was also Wednesday, later in the day. Okay. So he's gone on before the meeting and he's thrown this out there to see what the reaction is. Is that not inappropriate? If you are Peggy O'Neill or Eddie Maguire or somebody attending, Patrick Dangerfield, attending that meeting... Wouldn't you be going, hang on a second, we haven't even discussed this? Well, I, I gather from the response of some of the clubs that they might have been briefed, but other, like the coach of Gold Coast, for example, Stuart Dew, has uh, raised serious doubts about it. And I think this is just the way this current administration operates. They're populists. And Gillan McLaughlin is So stick your toe in the water and see what the public yeah, says. Yeah, he's, he's a populist. And he is so unlike Andrew Demetrio in that way. It, it's quite – because Andrew Demetrio couldn't – Speaking of. Couldn't have given a – rat's ass what anybody thought. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes it got him into trouble, but it was – It was strong leadership. Well, so are you yeah, suggesting Gillan is not a strong leader? I'm not – no, but I think he cares too much about what the public thinks of him. And I think the AFL currently is being run like a political party. Speaking of Andrew Demetrio, I saw him in the distance uh, – at the local supermarket last oh, week. Did you go and say hello? Well, no. Well, I would have because, you know, we've had dinner at your place and I know him and that sort of stuff. But I was, you know, busy carrying my bags and I think he, he had one of his um, rather lovely looking tall daughters. Well, last time I saw them, they were babies. Anyway, it, it got me thinking about Andrew Demetrio. And do you remember I said to you a couple of years ago when he was exiting the AFL, is this man going to be planning a career in politics? I'm still convinced that he has... Uh, he has his sights on some sort of role like that, but he's disappeared. Where's he's got? Where's he gone? Well, you tell me he's he's punting on greyhounds or something, but no, you can't do that. I didn't say that. I said he enjoys a bet at the races. I didn't say he punts on greyhounds. I kind of like the idea. I had a mental picture of Demetrio no. in his in his tracky decks, you know, sitting there on a Thursday no. afternoon I, that with is, the dish lickers watching them on he's telly. He's always listened to the races on the radio, but I don't know about the greyhounds. No offence to the dogs, but, you know, I think it's more horses. <laughs> anyway, you are just so loose, Corrie. The former AFL boss, when he left, it was amazing. He didn't go – he was made a life member of the AFL. He didn't turn up to the ceremony. He hasn't – well, for a long time, didn't attend Hall of Fame functions, didn't go to the official AFL grand final functions, and all his predecessors always do turn up. What, what was the thinking behind that, oh, Carol, I think to give he, Gillen some space? Yeah, I think so. I think you – know, and also, look, even though however he left – and, there, there, you know, some people think that maybe in the end someone said to him, Andrew, it's time. I'm not sure. I think it was a mutual decision by everyone that, you know, 11 or 12 years, however long he was head of the AFL, was enough. But what he's done this week, for example, he's appeared on the front bar as a guest, the Channel 7 show that appears um, once a week on Thursday nights. And he's also, I've noticed, is there's a wonderful event that's held in August every year. It's called the Bob Rose Lecture or Oration. 
And they've had some great speakers in the past. I think I might have been one of the early ones, Corey. Oh. Anyway, anyway, where's the, my bowl so I can throw the, up? The Bob Rose this year is um, the person giving the address is Kim Williams, the former head of mm. News Fox Limited Tell. and Foxtel and, and an AFL commissioner. And Andrew is delivering the response. Now you don't. He doesn't. He hasn't given many public appearances, certainly in a football sphere. So I think this is a sign that he's sort of, you know, Gillan McLaughlin's his own man now and he's been running the AFL since 2000 and, or early 2014. This is his 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. This is his fifth year and it's time for Andrew to, you know, come back in. Imagine if Andrew became um, the Chief Commissioner. No. Head I don't, of the Commission don't in think five that, years' time. Don't, I can't see that happening. I don't know. It often happens in club land, you know, golf clubs. The captain eventually becomes the president or whatever. Could enjoy. He could become. Yes, that's true. Or sometimes people step off the board and become CEO. It's a very. Why do you think he's um, he's reengaging? No, I just think that he's you know done the right thing and disappeared into the ether for a while, doing very well in business, and he's coming back in. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, I would be surprised if he went into politics. Would I think you? his experience dealing with politicians taught him one thing, and that's that he wouldn't have the patience for it. Well, anyway. he delivers a very good speech, Andrew. He brings he has the capacity to bring a lot of people on board with him through his oratory skills. Man Booker, it's the it longest been, time. Well, it's a funny thing, Carol, isn't it, that the Man Booker, formerly known as the Booker Prize, uh, is announced in October and the long list comes out in July. And the reason they have – and then the short list, I think, is September. And the reason they have always such this, this long lee, leeway time is because uh, bookworms out there all rush and read all the the ones that they haven't read, you know, the long list. So you do get a bit excited about this. And certainly as a bookseller in recent years, I've noticed that we do get a lift in sales of those long list so it was incredibly disappointing from a retail point of view to see that the 13 books on the list that were announced this week um, in England, and it was great to see seven of them were written by women, by, by the way, but there were no big names apart from Michael Ondaatje. Um, there was no sort of Julian Barnes who had a terrific novel this year, no Alan Hollinghurst, no Peter Carey, you know, the Australian who's won it a couple of times. I'm a bit over Alan Hollinghurst. I'm, I'm, his oh, last no. One. oh no! Really? I, I, Didn't you like the Spa Salt Affair? Uh, I love the line of beauty. Oh, but, I thought it was mm, very subtle. Yeah. But apart from um, Belinda Bow, she has been around for a, a while. Um, and as I said, um, of course, Michael Ondaatje with his wonderful Warlight, which we discussed on this show a couple of weeks ago. All the other names are just really, uh, you know, small, a couple of debutantes, which is always a good thing, but it's just such a disappointing list. And so, of course, we then rushed to our um, suppliers because we've only got three of these books in our shop at the moment and I suspect most bookstores around Australia are in the same boat. And the suppliers have none of these books available in Australia so we all have to wait for them to be shipped in in the next couple of weeks. So anybody who wants to read the Man Booker Long List, the 13 books, you're probably only going to get a couple of them you're going to have to well, hunt around. Well, booksellers, and can I just lift, say the bo- Can I just say the be... book depository in Amazon are going to take longer than the bookshop? to get it. But it's just it's just a very funny sort of list. Um, not Only a couple of Americans, which is good because people have been concerned that the Americans were just um, taking taking the award and running away with it. Well, if they write better books, that's fair enough. Oh, Caro, come on. Look, anyway, I'm just going to quickly run through the list. Belinda Bauer, who we know for Snap, Anna Burns for Milkman, which I have heard is a very good book set in Ireland, Nick Dransnow, who's an, an American writer for Sabrina, which I think is the first, is that the one that's the first um, 
graphic novel. I think that's the one. Uh, Ezia Wagan from Canada. What do you for mean, Washington the first, Black? Uh, the first graphic. graphic novel to ever um, be nominated for a Bookman Booker Prize. What gra- graphic in what way? No, they're known as graphic novels. That's the genre. They have pictures. Oh, novels with pictures. Oh, okay. Hence the graphic. Uh, graphic, you mean graphic in terminology, swearing. Well, I would have thought illustrated. <laughs> no, it's a well-known term. It's like misery memoir. The first time one of the reps said, oh, this is a really good misery memoir. I said, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, well, the victim has written about her experience having cancer. And this. Well, surely oh, a graphic God. novel is an illustrated novel, isn't it? Daisy Johnson for Everything Under, Rachel Kushner from the US, uh, The Mars Room, Sophie McIntosh for The Water Cure, Michael and Dutchie, as I said, for Warlight. Richard Powers for The Overstory, which is a dystopian drama. We actually do have copies of that uh, in the shop. Robin Robertson for The Long Take. Sally Rooney, Normal People. And Donald Ryan, an Irish writer for From a Low and Quiet Sea. So there's lots of themes and issues being discussed here. Lots of dystopian stuff. I think people, particularly in the UK, the writers are all feeling a bit nervous about issues, uh, you know, which brings the world to the brink of disaster. There's a lot of inner city violence. There are books about missing persons, ecology. It's all a bit grim, actually. There's no comedy. Remember when um, the wonderful Howard Jacobson won it for the Finkler question, yes. question a couple of years ago? Which that was is a right, great book. I love that. They said this is the first comedy to ever win the Man Booker Prize. So anyway, it's been a quite an interesting um, – but the fur is flying over there in the UK where they just love to dissect this list. You know, they're just going, oh, my goodness – you know, why is a graphic novel there and, um, you know, da-da-da, all this sort of thing. So it's a so, bit like Mike Sheehan's top 50 footballers. Oh, it, <laughs> it always well, that's the selection of the, the selection of the All-Australian team. That's why we love these lists because that's everybody true. has an opinion. I think it's great that all the old stages aren't there. I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, I really like Peter Carey. I find some of his novels hard work, but he's a champion. But, you know, it's good to have new authors coming in. Well, all right, well, I'll, I'll give you... The copy of each of the 13 books and you can tell me how much you loved the dystopian travels. With, well, I think <laughs> that um, I think that as a bookseller, you should you've no, got to put your know, finger out and start that, reading them. Guilt. You live with guilt for the next six months and, 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 of course, customers come and say, have you read all the books? And you just, of course, you have not done that. Hey, Caro. Which um, segues us into BSF. Well, it does, but just quickly, Warlight, Michael and Dutchie, it's your book club book. Have you read it yet? No. Okay, get on with it. Because I've been a little bit naughty. I'm, I'm off Mary Stewart. I'm not off oh, her, but I've, I've given her a, a We're break. so relieved. Well, I've run out of Mary Stewart books to read, so um, I can't get do the moon spinners again. What about again. the one you pinched from me the other day? Yeah, I finished that. I went into your shop the other day and I was looking. I just wanted, you know when you just want a comforting read? I'm not talking, you know, Noel Stretfield's ballet shoes, but something of that adult genre where it was winter, it was cold, I didn't have much on that weekend, and I just wanted to curl up with a book. And Did actually, someone recommend this to you, or do you like the author? I love just, the author. I'm going to talk to my staff if they haven't given you any attention. <laughs> no, they they actually no. Though I told them I was fine. I said, "Have you got anything by Sally Vickers?" And it's Sally with an EY. And I think I might have mentioned one of her books on the show before, on Don't Shoot Before, but um, I was first alerted to Sally Vickers by that wonderful magazine country style. You know, they have a book section at the back where they give you about seven or eight good recommendations. Their recommendations are really good, and most of the time they're books I've never heard of. Well, this one was about two years ago, and it was called Cousins. Yeah. And it's a... Look, it's a Lovely wonderful book. novel. I just really I – I give it away a lot as presents because I think it's a great story, a great read, incredibly sad but 
uplifting. Francesca but, loved Cousins. Oh, it's the most beautiful so, love so story. So there you go. Somebody who's 30 loved the book as well. So it's got wide appeal. So she's got a new one out called The Librarian. You would like it, Corrie, because it's green. It would look good in your colour-coded bookshelves in the green section. That's just a little joke. But, you know, I also do because I took your advice. But this is basically... I don't know how to answer that. It's it's about a librarian in a local village in the market town of East Mole. Um, I'll be honest, I'm only halfway through it. I only bought it last week and I started reading it over the weekend. It is just a wonderful saga about a young woman, um, her job in the local library, her love affair with a significantly older married man and two other major characters that come into their lives that one of those, you know, completely rewrite the history of her life. And that is the thing about this author, Sally Vickers. It's it's about one or two events that completely, and, and I reckon this is a real English novel thing, completely reshape mm. someone's life for the rest of their life. Um, it. I'm, I'm trying to think of um, Anita Bruckner. Yeah, is, we talked the other day about yeah. the letter that never arrives, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, Anita Bruckner does it really well. But anyway, I totally recommend Sally Vickers, so the, thing about the librarian. Sally, the thing about Sally Vickers, listeners, is <clears throat> she is um, 70 years of age, but she has a very modern take on the world. And I think given her age and the fact that she started writing when she was, I think, about 52, she writes with um, a sense of experience about the world. I love that. But her stories are quite gentle. And as you say, this one's set in the English village. Not a lot happening, but a lot is happening. So they're great dramas. My favourite two of hers, Caro, Miss Garnet's Angel, which was beautiful. Um, and then, as you said, Cousins is great. But there was another one, The Cleaner of Chartres, and this is the story of which I really recommend, and it's not a bad book club book either, about literally she was the cleaner of the Chartres Cathedral in France and her backstory, how she came to be there. A poor individual, a poor solitary individual, and the priest um, takes, you know, takes pity on her, if you like, and, she, and he gives her this job cleaning the cathedral. And it's the, the way she changes people's lives around her, a la, you know, chocolat, I suppose, because we're in the French village and it's that same feel. So that's a really lovely book, The Cleaner of Chartres. So everybody, go and read a Sally, as you said, with an E, Sally Vickers novel. Give us your best Swedish. Oh, look. Or could you speak in a Swedish accent? Because <laughs> you've just been to see a Swedish film. Well, it, the irony of this little um, screen story is that I was pretty keen to go and see Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again, which, of course, has a sweet I'm desperate to go. Oh, well, we'll go. We'll go this weekend. Oh, Coco, want, Coco wants to come with me, so I but have to wait till she's around. My dear friend Sal, who I was having a catch-up with over the weekend, turned her nose up completely at Mamma Mia oh, and, said, and said, no, no, no. And there was a few on at our local cinema, but we chose... Well, she chose a Swedish film. I told you I had a couple of passes to the Swedish... Um, it was a part of the Swedish Film Festival. Yeah, I think so. Initially, this is a film that opened the Swedish Film oh, Festival. Oh, you girlies could have had my tickets. It's called Under the Tree. Now, I wish I could say I really love this film. It's um, actually by an Icelandic writer-director who, oh, look, what's his name? Hafestein Gunnar Sigurdsson. <laughs> what's his it's, name? As if I'm going to come up with it's, that. It's about, <laughs> it is one of the more extraordinary films I have ever seen. Um the term jump the shark does come to mind with the ending and I won't go into any details but it's essentially Sal said look it looks good it's sort of a, an it's a bit of a black comedy about a neighborhood dispute well neighborhood dispute there's no such thing as comedy in swedish films or it, danish films 
people, there were scenes in this film, I would love you to see it and tell me whether you thought it was funny or horrifying. <laughs> people were actually laughing. We walked out completely stunned and headed straight for the nearest bar where we downed a Negroni extremely quickly. It, I mean, partly because we felt like a Negroni and it was night time and it was a cold Saturday night. But we you were, were a bit traumatised is what you're well, saying. Well, we were just shocked. Shocked. What happens? Well, I, I can't tell you, but it's a neighbourhood dispute. Oh, you've got the yips now because the listeners two, said that you give too it, many It's about a couple, Bordvin and Inga, and their lives have become – their lives have been touched by tragedy anyway. They have two sons, one of whom plays a ma- – well, both sons play a major part in the film. One you see a lot of, one you don't see at all. And it is the, the story of a family saga, a neighbourhood dispute – and it's the story of society, really, but it is just quite – I can't say I really liked it. And, you know, my friends always criticise me, including Sal's husband, Rick, because he reckons I'm not, I'm not discerning enough and I like everything. You love everything. Well, I didn't really like this. Okay. And Sal even said afterwards, sorry, and I did say, we saw people when you bounce out of Mamma Mia looking like they were ready for a party and we sort of skulked out of the cinema anyway – under the tree. I'm not Cara, sure I you, can recommend it. You and I have seen a lot of um, <clears throat> Scandi films over the, over our time together watching films, and um, some of them have been pretty uh, grim and dark, and not a lot happens. A lot happens in dark rooms, I guess it's the oh, weather. Oh, no, this wasn't. The one that you and I went, I can remember we went to see it at the Longford in South Yarra, and I absolutely loved it, was Babette's Feast. Do you remember that Danish yep, film? that was wonderful. <clears throat> must have been in the late 80s. Where the, where the housekeeper cooks the beautiful meal for the old people. And it's just a very gentle film. You can get that potties on Netflix or something like that, I'm sure. Babette's Feast, we love that. So, uh, okay, so no to the Swedish film festival. Well, well not no to the whole festival. And I've, I've, there are some wonderful other Scandinavian films that don't come to mind now. A lot in that sort of realist genre. Not so much Scandi-noir, but just beautiful stories about you know, really fascinating people. Yeah, and, and they do a family drama very well. And the scenery is always magnificent. And the light, the cinematic light of the grey skies is so beautiful. And I leave you with three words, under the tree. Okay. Oh, my heavens, what happens? Okay. Anyway, but I've also been cooking, Corrie. You've had you a know, busy weekend. You know, and I never do this, but, you know, Clem, my daughter, is just, you know, loves buying food magazines. And so she always buys delicious. She always buys Gourmet Traveller. Like the day Gourmet Traveller comes out is a very happy day for her. So she came home with the July Delicious recently. And on the cover, you know when you look at the cover and you go, I have to make this recipe? Mm. And I actually it's did make good it. marketing. Oh, did you? I did make it. And it's absolutely it beautiful. Like it did look like this. I'm going to put a you photo up. You sound shocked. <laughs> it was amazing. It, it look, it, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of hunting and gathering um, the recipe is called coconut chicken noodle soup. And the picture on the front of Delicious is of this beautiful, like a laxa-style soup with noodles and lots of garnish. The garnish, there's four garnishes, which I did all of them, which is coriander leaves, a bit of sliced red onion, those little fried shallots you get from Asian supermarkets, and baked coconut. Oh, yum. And green chilli. <laughs> five oh, garnishes. But what you do, I mean... The recipe I'll put up online, but you you make a spice paste. Now, this was remarkably simple. You know when you see spice paste and there are about 10 ingredients and you go, forget that. So Clem and I met at the market on Saturday before we went before I went to the uh, aforementioned Swedish film. We ate mussels out in the forecourt under, you know, there's a big mussel truck in the shape of a mussel 
Have you ever been there? No. And they sell mussels, like in polystyrene bowls for 10 or $11. Oh, how delicious. Clem had the white Sorry, wine one. didn't ones. you have radio commitments on Yeah, this Saturday? is after radio. Oh, okay, got it. After I'd been to botanical gardens, come off air and collected oh, you the do best, have a busy life? The best pine cones I have. You should see them. Wait till you get to no. my half. <laughs> but you can't take them from the botanic gardens. Because the ranger told you off last time. No, no, no. These are these are ones just right near the corner of right near the My Music Bowl. Don't tell Caro. A, don't tell everybody now. They're going to drive there. And anyway, the cones. spice paste has got it's got a thing called Belican in it, which is roasted shrimp paste. Again, you just go to the Asian food section and it, they've got everything. Um, tamarind puree. I'll have to make it again because I've now got all these things. Um, sunflower oil. Well, I didn't have that, so I use vegetable oil. Fresh turmeric. My nails were yellow. Yellow for three days after I'd grated all, I'd peeled all this fresh turmeric, four long red chilies, um, a bunch of coriander, but you only use the roots and the stems and you use the leaves for the garnish. As I said, two kaffir lime leaves. Well, the one thing I forgot to buy. So I went to my friend Deb's house on Sunday and we attacked her kaffir lime tree. They are the Isn't best it trees. Kaffir? Oh, just uh, oh, is it? I don't know. Remember you did the Asian cooking course in Thailand and you came back Mm. full of kaffir lime leaves (laughs) and how you can substitute normal lime leaves by, Mm. this is a good local tip, don't you cut it down the middle and then... Yes, you just dissect it around the stem part. Yeah, anyway, well, I had the real thing and then I froze what I didn't use. Thanks, Deb. Um, A big piece of ginger, three garlic cloves and a lemongrass stalk. And you literally put all that into the blitzer and blitz it. And then you cook it up and you add coconut milk and water and... All this other stuff, or a bit of brown, oh no, the brown sugar and the fish sauce you put in later. And then you chuck in an entire chicken into this broth and you leave it cooking for about, I don't know, it it says 50 minutes. And then you turn it off and let it sit there for a while so all the flavour is infused. Then you take out the chicken and shred it. Can you tell us, please, which edition this is? Is this August or September? Delicious. Well, I know it's not for sale anymore, but you can Google it, surely. Well, yeah, or we can put it up. I'm sure there's no copyright we issue because we have um, we have bowed bowed to the altar of the magazine, but we'll be able to put it up on Facebook. It's absolutely beautiful. We all had it for dinner, and I had it for lunch for the next three days. You would need something to cheer you up after the Swedish film. <laughs> I did, <laughs> I did, and I sat down and watched Jack Irish while I was eating it. But I won't say what happened because no, people aren't not, up with can it. You I'll say it. Don't mention Poldark. I'm still three episodes behind. So, so I've had no the more. Nourishing just, Winter Bowl, so the Nourishing bad. Winter Book, which is the Sally Vickers. You cleaned up at cards last night. You've had a very good week, Caroline. Not, oh, I didn't play well at Bridge, though, and a not so nourishing. Yeah, but you film. won all my money last night. But, Corrie, Six I'm also. Six quick questions, Caro. No, I'm also grumpy. Oh, yeah. Even despite all those good things. <laughs> despite all of that. Look, this is. I'm I'm going to talk about ecology now because um, I just find it extraordinary that supermarkets are banning plastic bags and it is a bit weird that people are having literally stand-up fights at the dog park (laughs) when there's four left. It's right. Well, no, no, apparently also at the supermarket counter at the till where they're having stand-up fights with the poor checkout ladies and men and and, and abusing them for charging them for a plastic bag. Just save your plastic bags, people, or... Save your other bags like we all do now. We've got them all or, in our car. like I gave you and Jane last week, have your little eco bag in you your pocket. I sent you a photo of my eco bag. You did. Yeah, I love my eco bag. It worked really well. Anyway, but then Coles have got this campaign where they're selling all these little mini tomato sauces and mini plastic um, Vegemites and 
they're selling all these little mini things, which they're giving away, like in the past they've given away stickers or little recipe books. And they're in plastic, not glass, you're saying. Well, they're, they're completely ecologically unsound. I, I don't understand what are they how. made of? What are they in? It must be plastic. That's why you're angry. It can't be glass. Well, yeah, I think they are plastic. Yeah, they are. Judging from the ads on TV, they're completely plastic. Oh, you should write And they're in. small. <clears throat> but but what, there, there was a bit of a win because that great show, War on Waste, you know, they, mm. they planned their big new episode, which is one of the things they're waging war on is plastic straws. And one of their main culprits was McDonald's. Well, McDonald's jumped them. So before the War on Waste episode went to air, McDonald's have announced they're phasing out plastic straws and they're going to do it this year. Now, that's a very good political advisor, someone who's on the ball and says, this is coming up and we've got to fight fire with fire. So I think War on Waste were a bit grumpy because that was sort of the the lead of their show. But on the other hand, they didn't need to be grumpy. A good outcome. They should be happy. It is... I I suppose I'm grumpy about the hypocrisy of Coles, but I'm also grumpy that people are so ridiculous about the fact that they don't, if they're not organised with their plastic bags. I I just find that so weird. Mm. They should have held on to more of them. Yeah, agree. Okay, six quick questions now. So I've been watching a little bit of Channel 10 News because I wanted to see, you said last week you thought Jennifer Kite had made the transition rather comfortably from seven to ten, so I watched it to see. Um, and now I'm interested about Stephen Quartermain coming back. Has he actually made a, an error playing second fiddle to Jen? It does look very strange to see someone who was reading the news now come back as he has this week, reading the sport again. It's very weird. Yeah, I, I don't – some people are saying trying to say there's complete tension between the two of them. I don't think there is, but I do think – Oh, no, think, I think they're good buddies. I don't think – I think he's been very pragmatic, Stephen Quartermain, but I cannot see him staying in that job for very long. But, yeah, look, Jennifer Kite is just a gun, isn't she? Yeah, she is. I mean – Stephen Quartermain did a very good job and he wasn't treated very well, but Jennifer's come in and she's just absolutely taken Channel 10 by storm. Ex- so. the, you know, the phenomenon of the experienced female newsreader, I mean, in the States, they're, they're everywhere. They blitz the boys in terms of ratings and stuff. There's just, you feel you're in safe hands, don't you? Well, I think with it's Jennifer. Male or female. I mean, I, I think all our newsreaders in Victoria are very good, actually. You don't think Peter Hitchin is getting a bit old? Oh, no, I don't. I can't believe he's the same age as Sam Newman, who's turning into a very grumpy and mean-spirited... Too old, many facelifts. ...older man, whereas Peter Hitchin is about the same age and he seems about 20 years younger. I also think Peter Mitchell's fantastic, too. And, oh, yeah, I do. And um, Ian... Ian Henderson. Henderson, who my mum used to drive to school. Now, same question as last week, me, back to you. What's your worst buzzword? <laughs> well, last week, can I just say a shout out to Jamie Mason on Facebook, um, the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook site. He agreed with my um, agitation about the word activation. Um, and he'd heard on an interview on the ABC, activate the Pentridge prison site. Oh, for God's sake. Exactly, Jamie. I agree. What's the world coming to? I've been activating my... Don't hip, say it, my hip flexors at yoga lately, <laughs> and that is one time ac- the word activate is used well, and I quite like it. Appropriately, but you're not activating your almonds. Um, Cara, my least favourite buzzword this week is reaching out. So I, oh, rece- uh, so I received in this- Right back at you. Isn't it, isn't it so oh, annoying? Gee, it pisses me off. It's such a millennial thing. Sorry, kids, but, like, come on. Work harder with your lingo. So I... I I received so many of them. I actually did a search in my e- email box. I put reaching out and, you know, sort of seven emails popped up. So, Corey, I'm reaching out to you to see if you might be interested in supporting our kindergarten art exhibition with a book voucher. 
And then last week I received a publicist. We are reaching out to you as there is a beautiful (laughs) synergy between our audience and your community. And then this one, the makers of the five-minute journal who are trying to get me to stock their journal again. Hello, Corrie. Today I'm reaching out as you placed at least one order with Intelligent Change and I would love to get your advice. Could you fill out this short five-minute survey? You're not reaching out to me to fill out a five-minute survey. You're bloody wanting my intel so you can work out how to promote your product. Come on, be honest. Reach out is such a Baptist church kind of thing. You know, and it has good. It used to have good connotations, and now I see the term "reaching out," and I go, "No, I don't want to be reached out to by you or your organisation." So stop it, all you publicists. Okay, Carol, me to you. Collingwood coach Nathan Buckley has he changed in any shape, way, or form? Do people ever really change, Corrie? This is the question. I don't think they do, but I think what he is doing this year, and this was a big talking point on Monday night when he was on Footy Classified. He denies he's changed. He thinks it would be it would make him a very shallow person if he had changed. But what we're seeing is the real Nathan Buckley. And I'm not sure he was relaxed enough to be himself in the last couple of years when things were, certainly the year before last, when things were going horribly wrong at the Collingwood Football Club. And even last year when it turned out the jobs weren't being respected, a lot of people on one-year contracts feeling very insecure. And this year we're seeing a more relaxed version of the same person, just as Damien Hardwick the year before admitted that he wasn't being himself anymore. He'd turned into somebody else. So I think when people change, they revert back to what they really are. That's when change is a good thing. I agree. And poor Nathan, for the first you know, little while of his coaching um, apprenticeship, had Mick Malthouse <coughs> hovering around. Mick probably didn't make his life all that easy, but Mick was feeling hurt. And it was a bad idea by the powers that be at the Collingwood Footy Club to even try that succession plan. Corrie, can you tell a person's age by the way they text? Absolutely. And use social media. So, Carol, you know that I am quite obsessed by picking up new trends. You know, hello, I was the first person ever to say um, Sex in the City was going to be a tear-away program when I first saw it. Um, It's my one claim to fame. Come on, as a television (laughs) reviewer, my one claim to fame. All right, okay. So so if you note, um, there is at a certain age, people like you and I, when we're texting, we use one finger. And then under probably 35 or 30, people use two fingers, two thumbs, and they go way faster than you and I do. Yep. I have never seen anybody over the age of 35 or 40 using two fingers. And if you're out there, please send me a video of you doing it. So when I was in the Apple store recently at Chatty, um, I mentioned this to my um, caring person who had reached out to me to say, did I need any help? <laughs> and I said to this young chap, have you ever noticed? Like, And he said, gosh, that's a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, we do use two fingers. And it's amazing the number of people who are probably your age, and I don't know what he thought my age was, but he said they use the one finger thing. And I said, at what age? If I had to say to you, what age do you reckon is the turning point? He said, about 34, which oh. I thought was a 34, not 35, or not 40, but 34. That's so a there very you are. random observation. But it's an interesting one. So I think in future, when we're seeing people text, uh, let's just have a look at whether they're two fingers or one finger and then look at their age. There you go. Caro, spring is on its way. What's your favourite spring bulb? Oh, there are so many. Freesias, hyacinths. No, I've got to be really boring and say daffodils. Partly they because bit, they smell though when they go they're off. They're so beautiful. They're so beautiful. And I actually bought some daffodil bulbs. I haven't planted bulbs for years, but I did buy some back in April and I planted them in May, which I don't know if I was a bit too late. But I keep looking hopefully out in the garden. They haven't come up yet. But they're those really beautiful ones with the. Um, 
one with the pale bit in the middle and one with that beautiful orange bit in the middle. Mm. So Sorry, as in the first one, pale apricot bit in the middle. Oh, yes. I, lo- the I love the outside, almost pink colour. Yeah, with the pale apricot yeah. in the middle. So definitely daffodils because they are just so rewarding. Is there anything more beautiful than a paddock of daffodils? Oh, no, I agree. But I think April's probably a little late, isn't it? Well, it was May, don't you, so. Don't you have to, oh, May, don't you have to put your bulbs in at Easter? Well, they that were was still the selling them. In, it was early May. Who knows? It was a weird sort of Indian summer, Corrie. Now, you've got a crush of the week. I do, and it's a pretty obvious one, and I think everybody out there would share this crush with me. Anesthetist Richard Harris and his dive partner, Craig Challen, um, were presented this week with Australia's second highest bravery decoration for acts of conspicuous courage in circumstances of great peril. And, of course, Dr Harris and Craig Challen were two of the cave divers who worked with the boys in Thailand in the cave. Dr. Harris conducted the initial medical assessments on the boys, um, as we know, and gave the medical all clear for each boy. And Dr. Challen assisted with de-kitting the boys of their diving equipment after they'd made it through. Very dangerous, very treacherous stuff. Actually, a number of Aussies, um, nine Australian workers were given... um, um, medals the other day um, by the Governor-General Sir Peter Cosgrove and the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. So we just say well done to all of you and we think you are fine chaps. That's it, Caro. Now my good local tip is it's sort of a weird one and more information might even be needed next week but I was so taken by this and I think it's such a great idea and I think you'll like it too, Corrie. It involves books Clementine, my daughter, has joined a book exchange and it's not necessarily used books. For example, she scuttled down to my bookshop yesterday to buy a book to send out. It is like the old chain letter thing. Oh, yes. Or remember we did one when we were young married, it was a recipe exchange and you sent a recipe to six different people and they sent it on and you ended up with all these wonderful recipes coming back in the mail. The brilliance of this book exchange is these kids are receiving things in the mail from people they don't know. Yesterday, I went to the letterbox and there was a big parcel for Clem and I thought, oh yeah, she's ordered something on, you know, one of those online sites again. It was a book from someone in Sydney he doesn't know, and it was a new version of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Oh, fabulous. I said, why is this person, this boy sending, she said, I don't even know him. I've joined a book exchange, and you send a book, and it involves a big network of young people, or old people, or any people, for example, and it's it's preferably something you've bought and read yourself. Yeah, I'm look. I'm very happy with that. You know my feelings about online shopping. Every time somebody buys something online, it is a dagger in the heart of local retails and strip shopping. But this is an online shopping. This no, is, well, that's what yeah. I'm saying. I think it's fabulous that sort of thing. I love that caring and sharing stuff. That's a good way to use Australia Post. Not buying books from Amazon that arrive seven weeks late. They charge you fifty dollars in freight, and everybody thinks they've got a freaking bargain. Take that, Amazon. Take that. Bit of vested interest going on there. (laughs) Not at all. Um, What a lovely show it's been. Um, Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Caro. Um, I loved hearing all your tips today. Um, You carried the weight of the show today, really. Um, Oh, you were pretty good on Super Saturday, which we'll be reviewing (laughs) next week. We certainly will. We might have a special guest next week, but to be confirmed. Okay. Well, we've got a couple of special guests coming up, actually. We do. But, Caro, I did want to sort of say that uh, if anybody has missed any of our tips or recipes or book recommendations or whatever, uh, there are 
show notes in the podcast app for details and also um, you can follow us on Facebook and you'll pick up a few tips there and of course the Caro and Corrie Instagram page. Lots of people leave comments on that and they are read by Caro and I. We love getting your feedback whether it's bouquets or brickbacks although we do love a bit of a bouquet. It's quite handy Oh no, sometimes. we like being bagged. We do. Um, and i just like to do a shout out to Lauren Jones who did a little review of Don't Shoot the Messenger and she said that um, she and her husband have been following our conversations and smart commentary on sport and current affairs since episode one. We listen to your latest chat separately, but we love catching up together later on to reflect on the knowledge and humour that you weave into each instalment. Carol, we're good for marriages and relationships. We have a new role in life. That's fine, Corrie, but just as reach out is an annoying term, I think shout out is something we don't need to pick up <laughs> Actually, either. I picked that up from your, your two daughters when they were on the show. Remember Rose kept saying shout out and I said to her later, I love that new saying and she looked at me like, yeah, five years old. Anyway, please email us with any feedback to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au, feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and as I said, Twitter, Carol and Corrie Instagram, the whole thing. Lovely to see you, Kara. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger, Corrie.